0: Turn tonight, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to relook at the first seven verses, but in the light of this very first church uh, here in these seven churches, the churches uh, of the kingdom age, the churches in Asia Minor, and so the seven churches, part two, and tonight we're going to take Ephesus. Now, again, I want to remind you, and I will do this each time we look at these churches, there are three ways you need to see them, practically, parentally, and prophetically in other words where they were then how they relate to every single church that's ever existed including ours today and then their specific place in the church age and so we need to look at each one of those and so in this church the church of Ephesus the church itself uh, existed from about AD 33 to AD 100 and it was the first of the churches and it was in fact the central church of Asia Minor so the church of Ephesus was rather like uh, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa is, uh, if you will, to Calvary Chapel in general. It, it was founded in a specific place, and it was from there that other churches sprung forth from it. So when you talk about the seven churches, most of them were birthed out of the apostolic work that occurred in the church at Ephesus. They went from there to Smyrna and Thyatira and these other cities, to Philadelphia, To Laodicea, Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did in any other church. In all of his writings, he spent three years in Ephesus. And so as he spent that time there, he invested heavily personally himself in the church at Ephesus. And so it is why we're going to see that tonight in this study, they were so biblically, doctrinally sound. They were taught by the Apostle Paul. Most every major doctrine of fundamental Christian faith comes from the writings of the Apostle Paul. If you were trying to find out what the doctrine of justification is, you'd have to go to the writings of Paul. You want to find out what sanctification is, you have to go to the writings of Paul. If you want to know what it means to be mature, the writings of Paul. You want to know about the gifts of the Spirit, the writings of Paul. You're not going to get those things from the Gospels. You're going to get them from the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul sets the fundamental foundation for the church at Ephesus. And we're going to see that it was very formal. In other words, it was kind of the old establishment. It's kind of like when we look at Christendom in our world today. You can go back, if you want to go back far enough, you would go back maybe to the Reformation period, to the writings of Luther and Calvin, John Knox, these wonderful historical brothers in the Lord that really are responsible for the Protestant church as we know it and from there it would go on and it pass through uh, all the various Anglican church and the Church of England and the uh, Puritans and the Quakers, and you would have them spinning off the Episcopalians and the Baptists and the Anabaptists, the Wesleyans and the Wesleyan Methodists, and all of these denominations that we would call fundamental Christian denominations really sprung forth in a doctrinal sense from the writings of Paul. And so as we look at this church, we're going to see, as the Lord speaks to this church, that they were doctrinally doctrinally right on, but they lost their first love. They they had one thing right, and they had an even greater thing that was wrong. You can be doctrinally sound, even in a post-apostolic way. In other words, pretty crazy to think, how would you like to be able to say, that I attend the church that was founded by the apostle Paul. I'd like to do that. Forget Peter. I'm going with Paul. <laughs> okay, I'm going with Paul. If I if I could pick any church, I would want to go to Paul's church. That was this church, founded by Paul. And so tonight, the first church, church period from roughly eighty thirty three to one hundred, we'll pick up in verse one. And we'll look at this church in its entirety. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for loving us and blessing us. Thank you for allowing us into your throne room through worship. We pray that you would bless us now as we study your word. Pray that these words would become literal life to us, that we would understand them with all of our heart and our soul, our mind. Lord, even our strength. God, let us endeavor to know you better. And so God, speak to us tonight, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, and again, this is red letters if it's in your Bible. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So you have the pastors, the mouthpiece of the church, in the right hand of Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate in human flesh, and you have the seven lampstands, the seven churches of the book of Revelation. So you have the leadership and you have the churches themselves. This is to Ephesus, this church. Uh, Paul came to Ephesus in AD 53. You can look in Acts chapter 18, 19, see uh, when he was there in, re- in relative, relative to the church age. He stayed there longer than any other church. You're going to find him writing from there in Acts chapter 20. Uh, and so his ministry, in essence... Uh, went into that region of the world in a very, very powerful way. And in fact, he so radically, according to the book of Acts, turned Ephesus, which was the capital city of the worship of the goddess Diana. And Diana was about as heathen as any wor- deity that was ever worshipped. Um, she was literally, if you want to look at it, she was actually a, a goddess uh, of fertility, but she was really a goddess of prostitution and sexual immorality She was a wicked goddess, and so awesome was the work of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus that there ended up being a silversmith's riot in that city. And what happened was, they used to make these little deities that people would buy because they had gone to the temple of Diana, they had worshipped there, they had done all of these things in the name of Artemis and Diana. Great is Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians, was the cry. And so, when they were in that city, as, as Paul would stay there for three years, they were a direct affront to the world. Everything about that city, in, in a sense of its carnality and flesh, Paul threatened. And so the silversmiths, because they were losing business, went absolutely berserk and rioted. You can't do this. We gotta kill this guy. We need to get him out of the city. And so this was a city whose church was rocking. These people were winning people to Christ, and they were having an impact in their community. And that community was a huge trading community. That community was a large place in the world. And so Paul turns that city upside down. And so first we see here, this, and that church was founded about 40 years uh, after Jesus is crucified and about mm, 15 years or so uh, after the founding of the first church that Paul founded. And so as he, as he spends time here, you, you can expect that this church is going to play a key role in the world, and it does. And so Christ says about that church, look, you guys are, you guys are really good. There was a basic problem in that region of the world, but very specifically uh, in in Ephesus. And that was they were they were syncretistic. And that word, it's tough to say, but it's rather simple to understand. It is like you have, if you go in, most of you drink homogenized milk, right? You know why that is? Because in the old days, you used to have milk and water and cream and butter. That's what milk was. And so if you didn't stir it, um, you could get a little bit of butter on top, followed by a little bit of cream, followed by some milk, followed by some water. Because in order of their density, they would actually stay in suspension in those levels. And so now you have all of that homogenized. So we don't say that we drink buttercream milk water, right? But in fact, that's actually what you drink. So syncretism means that they mixed every religion of the world together. So they were Christo-Islamo-Budo-New Agers. You got it? They just took and mixed everything together. And so you could go in in the morning and you could worship at the Temple Diana and then sleep with the Temple prostitute, male or female, by the way, and then you'd go back to church and pray to Jesus and you'd just have a grand old time. And so the church at Ephesus was saying, hey, no, wait a second, it ain't flying that way here but they started becoming unloving. And so rather than preaching in the church and teaching in the square and then loving people, they just got their doctrine right, but they got their love very wrong. You see, we have a responsibility, I have a responsibility to teach the Word as it is. But I teach the Word and preach the Word primarily to believers. But when I have somebody that doesn't know the Lord... I don't expect them to know what God's Word says. And I need to reach them as they are lost, not try and reach them as though they are found and dumb. And when I know that they're lost, I expect them to be sinners. I expect them to have come from a massage parlor. I expect them to come out of a bar. I expect them to be doing crack. I expect them to be doing all manner of evil things and lying and cheating and stealing because that's what people do when they don't have Jesus. That's what they do. You can't just have your doctrine right and your love wrong. You can't. you got to have right doctrine. You must preach the truth but you preach that truth so that it can be received in love. It can be strong. We're brothers and sisters in Christ in here. As so I look out here, I don't actually recognize anybody being in here that I'm not fairly certain that you're. we're believers. I can give you some meat. But I want to make sure that I give someone who doesn't know the Lord some milk, maybe some cream, some butter, maybe even some water. Notice verse 2, and it's the commendation, if you will. For I know your works. I know your works. Your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And he's speaking very specific. The word that's used here, translated from the original Greek language, means doctrinal evil. It's in light of what he's already said. He said, I know you can't stand false teaching. I know you guys have your doctrine correct. And that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. In other words, they had learned from Paul correct doctrine in such a way that when some flake came on the radio, some bonehead came on the TV... Some person came by with a flyer and says, I want you to come to my Islamo-Buddhist rally and hang out with us because we all have the same God. They knew that that was not true. They had their doctrine correct. They knew that Jesus Christ was the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. They knew that. They knew that that apart from sin being forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, that everyone would perish and go to hell. They knew that. They knew that they needed to grow in Christ. They knew that they needed to possess the gift of the Spirit. They knew that they were indwelt by the Spirit. They knew those things. You can't stand evil. No doctrinal shenanigans around you. But he also says something interesting here, because he breaks there after I know your works and your labor, because what he's talking about is labor in the very sense that you and I understand labor. When you join any trade union, initially, you become a laborer. Amen? You may make it into an apprenticeship program and become a foreman or something else later, or a supervisor, but you go in as a laborer. That is someone who gets to dig every ditch, Clean up every mess. Whoever did everything that messes up the job site or the factory, it is your job to do the stuff that no one else does. We call it laboring because it is difficult, it is monotonous, it is hard, you sweat a lot, you smell bad at the end of the day. Laboring is tough, hard work. Can I say to you that I think the church has lost its heart for laboring hard? There are an awful lot of people that think ministry is easy. There are an awful lot of people who, when they look at their life, they say, well, I'll do it as long as I don't have to sweat. Can I tell you, there's some sweating to be done if you really want to serve Jesus. Now, maybe it's actually going to be real sweating. This building didn't build itself. Uh, We spent three months of doing work parties virtually every single day to make this building what it is. And that was your pastor, too. That was your pastor's family. That's what you do. You do what's necessary. You work hard in ministry. I work hard when I study. These notes don't prepare themselves. These PowerPoint slides you can't get on the Internet, I did them. You have to work hard. You have to endeavor to do what God wants you to do with everything you have. He says, I know you guys are working hard. You you see, we, we kind of think that maybe that part's gone away today, and I'm telling you it hasn't. They had that fairly well in hand. Basically, we're telling God, we're all in. Whatever you want, Lord, I'm going to do it. Forty years after its foundation, uh, the Ephesian church was right on in that respect. They were good uh, in that way. They, They understood those things. But you know what? When the hardship came, they were done working hard. It's easy when things are easy. I know that sounds kind of stupid, but it's very true. When things are easy, it's easy to be a Christian. But things got hard. And all of a sudden when it got hard, not only did all that good doctrine kind of get shelved, they stopped working at it. And when you do that, you begin to lose the love that you had when you first got saved. The Christians in Ephesus weren't spiritual couch potatoes, that's for sure. But they had gone so far the other way that pretty soon they're just wandering around going, well, you know, at least we're doctrinally correct. I don't care who perishes. Anybody ever been to a church like that? I have. I've been to churches who have right on sound doctrine that you cannot find a person who actually loves the Lord in them. You can get in all kinds of theological arguments. You can debate the original language. You can talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls all day. Creation versus evolution. You can do all kinds of wonderful things. All those are good, by the way. But you can't find any love. That was this church. Paul, as he would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he would put it this way. Because we need to be tenacious of soul. Can I say that to you? Tenacious of soul. We need to be absolutely aggressive in our tenacity of making sure that it's right with our souls, it's well with our souls, that we've done all that we can to stand in these last days. Chapter 2, verse 3, it says there in First Timothy, And you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. For no one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the things of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a good soldier. You, you see, that's our call. We need to be hard workers in all the things that God's called us to do. And we also need to not bear with those things that are evil. But we got to do those things in love. Have to. You can't scream and yell at your wife and demean people and chew them up and spit them out and expect for them to see Jesus. You can't backbite, backstab, and gossip and expect people to see Jesus. you got to be loving. You can have the facts right and have the function very wrong. You can be absolutely right and totally unrighteous. That was Ephesus. Doctrine was great. They could quote you chapter and verse, if you will. But that wasn't the issue for them. I would also remind you that of the first first four of these churches here in the list of seven, the first four all dealt with false teaching. There's a lot of false teaching still going on in the world. Amen? If you want to see some, turn on TBN. For the most part, you're going to find false teachers on TBN. Not all. Greg Laurie's on there. There's a few guys on there that are fairly solid. But for the most part, those guys that are running around sitting on thrones with gold rings on every single finger, and wearing $6,500 shoes, shoes, by the way, shoes, there's a problem. Not saying that pastors can't earn a decent living. That also can be okay. But if you need a limo, if you need a private jet, if you need multiple homes in very expensive places, while the widow's mites being wasted, you got a problem. Amen. You see, if they'd have had the love that they needed to have, they would have recognized that preaching it, teaching it, doesn't necessarily equate to doing it. And so he applies these things. He goes on to. Now remind them, you know what? Verse 3, For you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and you've not become weary. He's still giving them the con- con- commendation. And he's telling them, you know, great, you're hanging tough. You're doing well. He uses two words, here: persevered and patience. They're actually one word in the original language in the Greek. And it actually is kind of tough to translate. That's why there's two words there. But it means... Literally, to abide under, to tabernacle in, to set up your tent, to make your home in adversity. Do you understand the difference? It's one thing to be patient one time. It's another thing to be patient eternally. It's one thing to be patient While there's a little stuff going on, it's another thing to be patient. While a lot of stuff is going on and it goes on for a long time, we are to set up our tent in the midst of patience and tribulation. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 says love suffers long and it's kind while it suffers long. They were absolutely persevering and patient while doing so. Uh, it carries faith into into trouble. Isn't it weird how we can have faith when things are good, but when things are tough, uh, not so much? You know, it's kind of, I, I know it's that way for me. Maybe it isn't for you. But there are times when I, when I look at things going on in my life, and I do get weary. I do get tired. And, and it says here that they labored. It, it means to bear up under grievous weight. Again, a little construction analogy. When we, we build like concrete structures that are overhead, bridges and those types of things. That's why when you drive down a freeway and they're building a bridge, have you ever noticed when they're building the bridge, there's all that woodwork underneath it. And it goes all the way to the ground. There's gigantic columns in there. There are tension members in there. There's superstructure underneath there. And not one bit of it is the actual bridge. That's the picture here. That is all supportive of the burden. And the burden comes when all those thousands of tons of wet cement gets dumped into that formwork that's on the top of that supporting structure. That's what it means to labor and not be weary. That you bear up under the load. That when the load is put on you, you end up okay. doesn't mean it's not heavy. It means that you bear up under it. I bear up under it. You know, we can take a lot of trouble when it's for a short period of time, right? Where we have trouble taking a lot of trouble is when that trouble lasts for more than three nanoseconds. You know, when that thing comes back, that that mean person at work, you know, the first time they do it, you just ah, they're just a jerk. The second time they do it, well, they're more than just a jerk. They're a double jerk. The third time, I'm going to kill them. (laughs) Then I'm going after their entire family. You know, you get get to that place to where it's like, you, you understand what I'm saying? It's one thing to bear up one time or maybe twice or three times. But what if that person comes in and every morning they greet you with, Hi, you're the most rotten person I've ever met in my entire life. About the 413th time that happens, you're, you're going to be looking for some place to land your knuckles on their nose. <laughs> we bear up under the pressure that God allows into our lives, uh, almost with an infinite ability, when we really are trusting and walking in faith. And that's hard. It's hard work to do that. Why? Why? Because you have to suppress your feelings, and I have to suppress mine. I have to believe the best. I have to look at that person and say, but for God's unbelievable grace, I could be just like that. Matter of fact, if we're honest, we were just like that before we met Jesus. Amen? We used to do the same thing. And so Paul's saying, Look, I know you've labored. And I know you've done it for my name's sake. It's one thing to take uh, criticism because you're just, you are not the sharpest tool in the shed. Amen? When somebody criticizes me for my humanness because I'm not perfect, it's like, say, well, tell me something I don't already know. But when someone criticizes or has unkind words or says things that are not cool to you just simply because you love Jesus, it's a little harder to absorb those things because you're being persecuted for his namesake. We don't like that. Matter of fact, we cave in rather quickly when it's for his namesake. That's the church in America right now, by the way. Most people cave in when it comes down to for his namesake. We're supposed to bear up for his namesake. We're supposed to carry the load for his namesake. And not get weary, not grow tired by toil is what that word means. It's tough. I Most of you know been in construction most of my adult life in one way shape or form and uh, back when you could still do it we used to pressure treat lumber with creosote and for those of you that don't know what that is it's one of the nastiest substances on the face of the earth it is just it will burn your skin literally right off it's got carbolic acid in it and when it gets warm it is really horrible you can ask Connie I used to come home my face would literally peel off from just the fumes of handling this stuff but I remember we, we picked up this job out in what is now Rancho California. It was then just Temecula, a giant horse ranch out there. And there were going to be about six miles of double creosote, five rail fence, six by six posts, which at the time, once the pressure treated, 100, 120 pounds apiece, each post, each rail, several hundred pounds apiece. And this whole thing was drilled all the way through the post, through the rails and bolted. It took forever. If you've ever been out in Temecula during the summer, they changed the sign during the summer. It says Hades. (laughs) It's hot. I mean hot. 120 sometimes in Temecula out in the back country near the base of the Palomar Mountain. That's where we were. The base of The heat just stayed there. And you'd go out, and I'd look at those piles. We literally had 11 semis show up forklifts, unloaded the stuff, and there was this mammoth pile of material for the whole job. Moment you got there, 7 o'clock in the morning, it was already reeking in the sun. Here's Here's the analogy. You'd look at that pile and go, man, it's still the same size it was yesterday. There's three miles of fence over there. But the pile has not shrunk. It's still the same stinking size. That's kind of our life in the Lord. Sometimes the pile of trouble looks the same size. Doesn't look like it's gone down. And you come back and you go, You know what? I'm taking another lift of posts off that pile. Go get the forklift. And put them on the truck. And we're going to go back out in the summer sun, and we're going to put these things in the ground in concrete, three feet in the ground in hand-mixed concrete in a 12-inch hole with a 6-inch post. It took an entire wheelbarrow to fill two holes. And after about six months of that, God, just kill me now. <laughs> but you go back to the pile, you get another lift of posts, You go back out and you finish some more work. That's toiling for his namesake. That's, you know, I don't care how big that pile is. I'm going to get the job done. That's the way we're supposed to work in this world for the Lord. We don't give up. We toil. We press on. They actually were doing that. But then something changed. And the bad news, something was amiss. It goes from commendation now to correction. Can I tell you it's possible to have both distinction in your heart and disrepute at the same time? Your flesh and spirit, right? Anybody in here ever sin? Raise your stinking hands. I'll raise your hands for you, you sinners. yeah. So we can one day be just talking up Jesus and, you know, man, God loves me and I'm walking my faith and everything's cool and it's awesome and I can't believe this and I'm just so right on with the Lord. And the very next day, you're like denying the Lord Jesus. We're just like Peter, amen? You get there in the lunchroom at work and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I can't believe I met this Christian. Oh, yeah, those Christians, are all like that. Oh, wait, I am one. That was the problem. While well, your Bible says that there is no good thing in us. That apart from the grace of God, we are filthy lepers, still in need of cleansing every day. Nevertheless, verse 4 says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is a charge. It says, look, guys, it's like you went into the court of law, and here's the positive evidence. You know, when you prepare a case in a court of law, you get all of the evidence and you prepare for the negative that your, your opposition is going to bring. But you present the positive evidence. And now here's the negative evidence. You got this for you, but you have this against you. This is a big thing. You've left your first love. You guys remember, I don't know how many of you remember what it was like when you first got saved. I remember, like it was yesterday, what it was like when I first got saved. I, I told everybody about Jesus. Everywhere I went, I was, I got saved! And they were like, you did what? You know, was that, you know, and we had at the time, that was back in the late 60s, early 70s, some of you remember those I found it bumper stickers? There was a campaign in Christendom, and if you got saved someplace, you put a. It says, I found it. And it was supposed to stimulate other people's uh, minds so that they would go, Well, what does that mean? I found what? I found Jesus was the answer. And then you could share with them the four spiritual laws and all those kind of things. I, back seat of my car just had like 50,000 tracks, and I had all kinds of stuff, and I put bumper stickers on it, and I was just rocking for Jesus. I had a beautiful 1961 Dodge Lancer, <laughs> push-button transmission, black, Use more oil than gas, and it, I was like a, a driving advertisement for Jesus. The whole back of my car, the glass, everything. I had bumper stickers everywhere. And then there came that one time when I had a uh, dime bag of pot in there along with all those things. I had lost my first love. I was no longer telling anybody about Jesus. Matter of fact, my life said something very, very, very different. You see, I'd lost my first love. I'd been sharing I had been sharing the Lord and causing people to know I led people to Christ and then first love I probably shouldn't have that for those of you that weren't ever stoners that was a baggie full of pot okay just so you know I see that hand in the back See, they didn't have any problem with, with false teachers. They were good with that. Their doctrine was right on. But they were so doctrinally correct that they were actually being disobedient. They were no longer loving, they weren't loving people. Couldn't care less about people. And no longer loved the Lord Jesus like they did when they first came to Christ. I would ask you have you strayed away from your fellowship with the Lord? I'm not talking about being here at church. I'm talking are you and Jesus like this? Are you inseparable? If the Lord was removed from your life, would most of your life still be left or would most of your life be gone? You ever thought about that? CS Lewis said it well. For many people if you remove Christ, they'd still be what they think is a Christian. That's crazy. That was the church at Ephesus. They could quote you chapter and verse, so to speak, doctrinally, but they no longer loved the lost. They didn't care about people. They were probably more worried about their building than they were about the people that walked through the doors. God help us if we ever get that way. I will tell you this. That red-hot love that they had for the Lord got turned into just red-hot hatred for people so much so that they sequestered themselves. They became ineffective, and ultimately, the Muslims, in about 700 A.D., came to the city of Ephesus, and there has not been a Christian population there since. Notice what he says in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Yikes, you do not want Jesus saying this about you. Remember from where you have fallen, repent. Now, who were they? They were doctrinally sound. They could quote you about every major doctrine of the faith. Well, Paul himself taught us about justification. It means just as if I had never sinned. They could tell you that. But they had lost their first love. Remember from where you fall. Repent and do the first works. Notice what he says. Or else. Or else. They not only took their eyes off the Lord, but they lost fellowship. They had lost their love. I will come quickly to you. And remove your lampstand. What's the lampstand? It's the church, right? So when you have Jesus saying, repent, or I will come and I will remove. He will come and he will remove the church at Ephesus. That's what he's saying. Can I tell you that Jesus hates lousy churches? He does. And we're going to see that in a minute. I'll remove your lampstand from its place. And that word repent in this connotation actually means to be pushed aside as well as to turn around. This wasn't an occasional slip. And he uses that word repent again. We don't like repent. Repent is a lost word in Christendom today. Don't want you to teach us about repentance. Can I tell you there's no forgiveness without repentance? Repentance. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Anybody that thinks that you can become a Christian, just say some fanciful prayer, and never turn from your sin, you are not saved. You're not saved. Because if you were saved, you would repent. If there was an indwelling of the Spirit, you would hate what God hates, and you would love what God loves. That doesn't mean imperfection either. If you're still struggling, that's a different matter than you being completely unrepentant. And not turning at all. It wasn't just the occasional slip. It wasn't a problem area. It was a lifestyle that they engaged in. If your life does not change, if there's no renewing of your mind, you must question for yourself whether you're actually of the faith or not. You must. Your eternity rests in it. There's two words here that are translated. Actually, this is the reverse two words that are translated uh, into repent from the original language. And it means actually to change and to think. It means to change your thinking, but it's more than that. And here's why it's more than that. In our English language, repent means to have sorrow, basically. When you ask, well, are you repentant? That means that you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar and you're sorry about it. To most people, that's how they view repentance. That's not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is much more like this. You have to imagine this. and You can't all see my shoes. But suppose I came tonight and I was wearing pink Converse. In Jesus' name, no. (laughs) Blasphemy. Blasphemy for a man to wear pink Converse. But I show up and I'm wearing pink instead of these nice black ones that I have on right now. And I come with pink pink shoes. And one of you comes to me and goes, Jeff, that that is just not right what you're doing. That is wrong in every shake of the imagination. A man of your stature and height should never wear pink Converse. And so I listen to you very intently. I kind of scratch my chin. Put my hand to my side. I lean to the side. And I go, you know what? You're right. I'm partway there. The way I get all the way there is I take those stupid shoes back to the store, trade them in for black ones, come back dressed like a man. (laughs) Amen? That's repentance. I heard what you said. It changed my thinking. It also caused me to go and do something about what I am now thinking, which is the right way, and to come back correct it. Do you get the picture? Very important that you do. Because a lot of Christians have the wrong understanding of repentance. They simply think it means, I'm sorry. It's, I'm sorry, Jesus, you're right. I'm not only going to change my thinking, but I'm going to change the way I act. That's real repentance. That's why he gives the or else. Do you think Jesus would give the or else in this passage if he was simply talking about someone thinking about being wrong? He wouldn't. He says, or else, can I tell you that God's not afraid to give you an or else? He's not. Jesus is not afraid to give you an or else. Or else, I'm going to take your church and I'm going to push it away. I'm going to make it at least irrelevant. And in this case, it was swept from the face of the earth. You can go and visit the ruins, supposedly, of the church of Ephesus today. If you go on an Apostle Paul cruise. Through the Greek islands, you can go see that. But there is no church. Wiped out by the Muslims. Jesus, as Hebrews says, always, always, always chastens or disciplines those whom he loves. Always. And in fact, it goes on further to say that if he does not chasten you, you are not his. So if you've never got a spanking from the Lord... You might want to ask him why. If you happen to be the only perfect one on earth, praise God. But if you have no conviction of sin, if the things that you do don't matter to you, that you know are wrong, if it's just like, I don't care, then perhaps you're just like the Ephesians. The word that's used here for remove actually has, again, two words And they're translated into our English language, kinetic and cinema. An action movie. Isn't that crazy? To put into action that which is moving. He says, I will put into action something that is moving. I will remove you from your place. I'll take you out like some action hero that isn't real. Thousands of churches disappear throughout the world every single year. You go through America, it's crazy. You know, we we grew up in a day and time when there were parts of most communities in America, we used to call them church corner. And there would be a Baptist church over here and a Presbyterian church over there and an Episcopalian church over here and maybe a Methodist church on this corner would be church corner. How many of those church corners are actually empty? I forgot to put it up here, but I actually have a picture of an old church that is now a marijuana dispensary in Colorado. Fortunately, they took down the cross. But they've actually absconded with that as their symbol. They just paint it green. I'm kind of surprised they didn't leave it up there. I would have also expected it to burn to the ground the following day. but Not that I would have done it. I'm pretty sure a lightning bolt would have hit it. <laughs> Repent. Change. Let go of those critical spirits that we often have. Amen? Aren't there times when we just we almost get tired with God? It's just like, man, would you stop bugging me? I remember when I was—I think I was probably 18, 19 years old—and and I had I had gone to a, a meeting of an evangelist and listened to this message, and it wasn't the one that I gave my life to Christ out of some other guy at some other church, and somebody invited me to go, and the Holy Spirit was just hammering me. I mean, it was just like bam, bam. And I remember going out in the parking lot and going, just stop. I actually yelled up at the sky like God was going to hear me yelling at him any more than I could have just thought it in my head and he would have heard the same thing. That's because I didn't want to repent. I did not want to turn around. And so I'm shaking my fist at God. I lived long enough to have him keep pounding away at my life. Because I genuinely was saved. And though I didn't always show it, I actually was desirous to repent. I just kept fighting against the goats, Exactly what the Apostle Paul experienced on his Damascus Road trip. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goats, Saul? Notice verse 6. You see, he got an attitude adjustment. He got a behavior adjustment. He, he ends up, you know, taking these things and losing his first love. Jesus is reminding him, look, I'm going to change you. Unless you change, I'm going to remove you. And then he gives him that exhortation. Do it. And then he says something that's actually pretty hard for us to understand. Jesus hates. We have a tough time thinking of Jesus hating. Who is speaking in the book of Revelation? It's Jesus, amen? What does it say in verse 6? But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. H-A-T-E, hate. There are things on this earth that, that Jesus hates. And there are people engaged in those things, whom Jesus hates the things they do, and so consequently, they are under his hateful eye. I do not believe that the Lord Jesus is okay with child molesters. I am pretty sure not only does he hate the deeds, but because they harm innocent people, there is a measure of hatred that's aimed at them as well. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around that. Does he want them to change, and repent, and be saved? Yes, of course. But he hates sin. And when other people sin and drag people into their sin, they are putting themselves in line for the Lord's hatred. Doesn't mean they can't be saved. Doesn't mean that they've yet fallen all the way out of his favor or beyond his grace. But you are setting yourself up to be in the hate-o-meter of Jesus. And so what does he say? He said that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. This was a a cult. It was founded um, by a a man named Nicholas, and he was in Ephesus. The Nicolaitans followed Nicholas around, and basically he was the syncretism guy. He believed you could just blend it all together, and in fact he believed in, in what we call Gnosticism. And Gnosticism basically divided the human being into two equal parts. One part would be flesh and one part would be spirit. And the Nicolaitans believed that it did not matter in one iota what you did with your body. You could sin in absolutely any way you saw fit and you could still be perfectly okay with God. Because the body was mortal, it was made of dust, it's going to stay here. And so, because the spirit was the only thing that mattered, it was exactly like our day and time where people say, well, don't judge my heart, brother. Dude, you just shot the guy. You are putting a line of crack up your nose. You're engaged in fornication. You're not married to the woman you're living with. That is is the sin of the Nicolaitans. For you to claim that you are a child of God and at the same time claim that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality is exactly the same argument. Well, this is my body. I own it. I can do whatever I want with it. And in fact, it's staying here. It's only my spirit that's going to heaven. So what does it matter what I do with my body? And they will look you in the eye and say, man, don't judge me, bro. You're judging me. No, God is judging you. And I am agreeing with his assessment. (laughs) His assessment is, these things, thus says the Lord, you can't be these things and also be a Christian you were supposed to be a washed-up, has-been, not very good at it sinner, not a pro. And when people tell you that they can do anything they want, and they say they're a Christian, and then they draw other people into that cult-like thinking, you are participating in the sin of the Nicolaitans. Living with your boyfriend or girlfriend is not okay with God. It's not okay. He created marriage, and he made it between a man and a woman. Anything else? Not okay with God. It is not okay for you to recreationally drink and bend your mind. It is not okay for you to smoke pot, ever. It alters your mind. Scripture calls it participating in sorcery pharmacia. It's not okay. So when you drag people into those sinful behaviors, they then get the wrong impression of the holiness of God. And when you claim to be a Christian, and you drag people into those sinful behaviors, you are doing the work of the enemy. We're not supposed to do that as the body of Christ. Brews and carols don't work, okay? Associating Jesus with a drinking party is not honoring to the Lord. Period. That's exactly what Jesus said he hates. H-A-T-E hates. He's not okay with it. That was the sin of the Nicolaitans. It's all okay, man, just tolerance. Tolerance. When in fact, it was idolatry. It was harlotry. They believed and worshiped actually Jezebel. said, so look, we can do anything. This same John in his epistles, in 1 John in chapter 2, do not love the world, it says in verse 15. For if anyone loves the world, The love of the Father is not in him. For all that's of the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. And this world is passing away. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. You see, there's an awful lot of people that are pretty light on sin. And God hates it when Christians who name the name of Christ are light on sin. It's okay to be loving. He's already told them that. Get back to your first love, but tell them the truth in love. Don't lie to them lovingly. Don't bend the truth to what you want it to be so you can enjoy the same things that they're enjoying, so that you can take the liberties to join in their little wonderful parties. Basically, he was saying this unrestrained indulgence is going to hurt people. It's going to cause them to miss me. It will cause them to not see my holiness. Everyone in this room, I believe, knows that he is holy. Amen. So much so that you could, if you he were here today, you could not look on him. It would kill you because he's that holy. Don't think for a moment that he's okay with our garbage. He hates the sin of the Nicolaitans. Society doesn't hesitate to lower its standards. But we as the body of Christ should never lower our standards. Never. Flies in the face of our central value in our country, doesn't it? Isn't that what's being preached at you right now on every single level? Every single piece of media. It's all about tolerance. Amen? Except when it comes to holiness. Don't tolerate that. Don't tolerate Christians. Throw that Navy chaplain out. He prayed in Jesus' name. He actually dared to love somebody who was struggling in a homosexual relationship and told them, you cannot be a homosexual and profess Christ. That's what he said. He is about to lose his commission because he said it. That's our world. Do not believe in the world. Because there's going to come a day when we're going to be laboring underneath the weight of the things that the Lord wants us to be in this world. And unless you're prepared, you're going to be going the same way as everybody else. It's crazy. I mean, what? It, it's it's so strange to me because I've been alive just long enough to, to see the things that are on television and to think that would have been criminal when I was a child. I mean, it wouldn't just been wrong. It would have been criminal what goes on TV right now. Absolutely, you would have been thrown in jail for putting that out over the airwaves. You'd have done serious prison time for probably half or more of the programming that's on television right now. Prime time on the family channel, by the way. The Hallmark Channel even occasionally goes that way. You're like, that's the way of the world. Can I tell you that if the church doesn't stand... I expect God to remove the lampstand of the churches who will not stand against the sin of the Nicolaitans. I expect it. They may be wealthy today, but when pastors stop preaching the truth from the pulpit, you can expect that church to disappear, and they are by the droves. Look at the churches that are disappearing. Big churches that are disappearing. Mars Hill, gone. Stop preaching the truth. A lot of wonderful people got turned off. A lot of solid Bible-believing Christians turned off against God because of that sin of Gnosticism, saying one thing, doing another. Live and let live is not a biblical value. It's not. We are supposed to hate what God hates. Now we need to hate the right way, don't we? And that means we say, man, brother, I'm not judging you because you're doing that. I'm saying this is what Scripture says, and you can't name the name of Christ. You cannot name the name of Christ and say that that's okay. And here's why. You see, they had their doctrine right, but they didn't have the love To go to somebody and say, look, you shouldn't be at the Temple of Diana. Instead, they're going, man, those temple prostitutes, well, that's some pretty nice-looking ladies up there. I can understand why you would be struggling with that, brother. That's what they were doing. They lost their love so much so that they didn't care about the souls of the people whom they were now approving of their sin. They faded off into existence. Jesus calls us to positive and decisive choice. Notice what he says. Choice is yours. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as. Notice it's plural. Written to Ephesus. Applied to every last one of them, including ours. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden. Amen? It was the tree from which Adam and Eve didn't have to worry about because they were already born with eternal life. But they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and in doing so sinned against God and lost that eternal life. He's saying, look, if you overcome, you have eternal life. Who overcomes? Those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's us, it's you, that's me, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He's saying to us today, look, make the choice, make the turn, turn around, do the right thing. Don't put up with sin, not any of it. Now, having said that, I realize I've preached at you, and I've done it for a reason, because you guys can take this and go live it out in the world. People are looking at you. You're going to have the opportunity to live these verses out. You have to stand because people aren't standing. They're caving. One by one by one, the churches in America are, their doors are closing. Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has nearly lost half of its membership because of this issue. Episcopal Church in America has lost nearly half of its membership because of this issue. Because people who actually love the Lord Jesus and believe this is truth have stopped going there. Does that mean that everybody in those churches is off base? No, not at all. It means that when the church stops teaching the truth, then the people start not teaching the truth. We're going to preach the truth here. It's your obligation to go live the truth now. You are overcomers. You will taste of the tree of life. You're going to be, your name is etched in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're good to go. So go live it and hate what Jesus hates because he does hate some things. He doesn't hate specifically the human being in that sense, but he hates human beings that are engaged in those sinful behaviors because the sin that they undertake destroys other people's lives. It's pretty hard, and I can explain it to you this way so that you can understand it. If you choose the wrong side in an army, you're likely to get blown up. Amen? You're out in a battlefield someplace, and you decide you want to be with this side over here, and this side over here is the ones that are winning, and you go over here, you may get blown up. Why? Because you've aligned yourself with the enemy. And so when the winner, the victor, Christ, comes, he will destroy that which is evil. You get destroyed with it. Don't align yourself with the enemy. It's a dumb thing to do, and it can bring you in line of the wrath of God. It's what you've been saved from, by the way. Jesus says to us, look, you don't have anything to fear. Overcome. You don't have to worry about it. Overcome. Overcome. You don't have to do it. Overcome. That's why John, First John, John, chapter four says, "Whatever's begotten of God overcomes the world." That's what you do. That's who you are. So if you're not overcoming, what Jesus is saying, ask yourself the question: Why? Why aren't you overcoming? Get back to overcoming. Repent. Turn around. And He will give to you from the tree of life. In the midst of the paradise of God. When you eat of the tree of life, you're in the middle of the paradise of God. That's what happens when you're an overcomer. When you hate what God hates and you love what God loves, you can count on being in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to make sure that tonight... Uh, You are honored with our lives, with our thoughts, with our actions, with our deeds, with our words. And so, God, we just simply ask of you uh, that you would pour your spirit into us, that you would move, Lord, in a mighty and a wonderful way, and that, God, as you do that, uh, that those things in us that need to change would change. Lord, we want our lampstand burning brightly, Lord, here in this church. We ask that you would bless us and anoint us and refresh us. Uh, Move us into new heights, new things. Lord, God... We just, we just give you our lives. Help us, Lord, to, to bear up underneath the burdens that we face, Lord, to be your mouthpiece, to always have that first love, Lord. We ask you to do that in us, Lord. Help us to not simply uh, judge others, Lord, but let us judge ourselves to see if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, so that people could simply follow what it is that we do and that we would lead them rightly in following you to the tree of life. It's in Christ's name we pray these things man.